Good morning and welcome to the beginning of our study of 2 Corinthians. Um, we're subtitling this study Strength and Weakness because that appears to be a unifying thought and thread among several, but certainly one of the predominant unifying thoughts and threads that weaves through this, this marvelous, marvelous epistle. Uh, I've chosen for my title this morning, The God of All Comfort. It's one of the, the names of God assigned by the Apostle Paul and uh, to the Lord in verse three of our passage this morning. We're gonna be looking at verses one through 11 and as is necessary when we begin a new book study, that's gonna involve a little bit of a look at the, at the broad context of the book. I'm going to do a deeper dive because there's a, there's a complexity. Paul's relationship to the church at Corinth was not a simple one to even, even trace across multiple times he wrote to the church and multiple times he visited the church. And it was a, it was a, a troubling emotional landscape as well. The church at Corinth was a source of great joy to the apostle Paul and a source of some noteworthy heartache to him. So we'll talk about that a little bit more on Beyond the Notes, but I'll sketch some of it for you in the next few minutes. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Roman numeral one, let's look at these first couple of verses as sort of an intro to 2 Corinthians. Letter A, the author. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. He introduces himself at the very beginning 
the Apostle Paul. If you've been around the study of the New Testament very much, the Apostle Paul uh, is becoming and will become sort of a, a familiar old friend to you. He wrote more books of the New Testament than any other single author. He, uh, his, his letters and writings to the early church during the course of his unfolding missionary career form a very, very important sort of doctrinal centerpiece to our New Testament. No doubt the greatest missionary, evangelist, systematic theologian who ever lived apart from Christ himself was the Apostle Paul. He uses the word to describe himself apostle, and we need to very quickly trace. That word is used at least three different ways in the New Testament, and just to quickly sketch it. The first and most technical use of the apostle is those who were the disciples of Jesus Christ during Christ's earthly ministry, minus Judas Iscariot, who is the, the greatest missed opportunity in the Bible. Judas Iscariot never knew God. He went through the motions for a period of years, but he never ever actually turned from his sin and trusted Christ as his savior. And so he's not included in those original 12 apostles. He is excluded by his own lack of faithfulness. And in his place, we have Matthias, who was chosen by the will of God, by the means of the other apostles in the early church in Acts chapter one. The reason that we can't include Paul in the original 12, and this comes up from time to time, the qualifications for the original 12 included that you had to have been a follower of Jesus Christ from near the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, an eyewitness of Christ from the time of his baptism on. And the apostle Paul was not converted until much later. He called himself an apostle born out of season. Um, and so he's not one of the 12. You say, Brother Russell, how do you know there have to be 12? Because their names are carved, according to Revelation, on the 12 foundation stones of New Jerusalem. And uh, so there is an original 12 apostles. Now, Paul is, a, is a, a secondary sort of apostle, an apostle nonetheless. Um, the, the largest qualification of an apostle, in addition to those 12 who have to have been eyewitnesses of the whole ministry of Jesus on earth, in order to be an apostle at all, in any technical sense, you have to have been handpicked by Jesus. And as many of you will recall, on his way to Damascus to persecute the church there, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, later come to be known, who would later come to be known as Paul, was hand-selected in an encounter with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And in that sense, Paul is absolutely an apostle. And much of 2 Corinthians is going to be Paul vindicating and arguing for his own undisputed apostleship. A third and lesser way that the word is used is in an utterly non-technical sense. The word apostolos, on which our English word apostle is built, simply means sent one. And in a very non-technical sense, an apostle could be a missionary. It's used of Barnabas in that way in Acts 14. It's used of James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was not a technical apostle, but who was a sent missionary of God in Galatians 1. <sighs> Short takeaway, Paul was an apostle as much as one of the 12, but he was not one of the 12. The recipients, the church at Corinth, and all who were in Achaia. What's Achaia? If you took the modern nation of Greece 
and divided it in half. It sort of juts out on a, on a, on a long, long, big peninsula into, into the Mediterranean, bounded, bounded by the Aegean Sea on the eastern side and sort of the, the remnants of some of the Adriatic on the other side. Greece is, if you, if you could overlay a map of the provinces of the Roman Empire from the first century, when these books are written, when Paul is conducting his missionary journeys, the modern nation of Greece would divide into two Roman provinces. The northern one was the province of Macedonia. Not the modern nation of Macedonia, it's a different footprint, but the Roman province of Macedonia is the northern half of Greece, and the city of Philippi was the principal city of Macedonia. The southern half of Greece would be the Roman province of Achaia. And while Athens was there, and Athens had been the principal city in that part of the world for some time, peaking under the Greek empire, by the time you got to the first century and the dominance of the Roman empire, Corinth was the larger and more influential city, wealthier, extraordinarily cosmopolitan, uh, a, a crossroads of two different oceans, we talked about that some in our intro to 1 Corinthians. I'll go over it more and beyond the notes. But an extremely wealthy, extremely worldly city. Paul has had a long relationship by the time he writes this letter, 2 Corinthians, probably about AD, late AD 56, early AD 57, actually writing from Philippi. He had written to them during his ministry in Ephesus. There had been various correspondence and a quick second visit. He founded the church at Corinth in Acts 18, visited it briefly during his time in Ephesus in Acts 19, and is planning on going there again, as he will say late in this letter. <sighs> Short takeaway, a church he had planted, a church he had loved, a church with which he had extensively interacted. And here he interacts again. Now before I look at these first, these first two actual paragraphs of the text, there's a little bit of a, of a, of a rabbit I need to chase down. Formally enough that I've put it in your, in your notes. In these two paragraphs we're about to examine, we're going to look at the matter of external pressure and external Suffering, I've called it the affliction, external affliction in verses three through seven. And then we're gonna look at internal despair in verses eight through 11. And what's missing from these two paragraphs, I may as well point it out right up front. As we deal with external affliction and internal despair as believers, what we do not have in these paragraphs is, is, the, uh, is the expression that the, the way to deal with this is, is hang in there because it's going to resolve itself. Your difficulty, you know, just, just if you can make it till tomorrow, the sun will come up and all will be well. I've been blessed, humbled, and, um, and gratified to, for most of, most of four decades now, to have been involved in, in pastoral ministry, which has included no small amount of pastoral counseling. And it's a humbling thing when brothers and sisters in Christ extend enough trust to say, you know what, I just need to sit down with somebody to, to pray through my struggle. And I'm not a clinician. I don't purport to be. 
but I've known Jesus for a long time. And I have sought to be a student of his word. And from time to time, have been blessed to hopefully help with this, this thing of thinking biblically about, about what we're going through. And one of, the, one of the greatest frustrations that I've encountered, and I've encountered it often enough in, in counseling that I'm, I'm, I'm gonna deal with it a little bit here. People who are in a, in a set of, of bad circumstances where things are not going well, claiming some promise that, it's, it's, it, that, that this particular part of their life is going to be okay. That it's, it's, going, to, it's going to work out. Because after all, Romans 8, 28. And probably aside from John 3, 16, Romans 8, 28 is one of our most oft-quoted verses from our Bible. And, 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 and well so. It's a precious promise that all things, we, we know that all things, for those who love God, all things work together for good. What a spectacular promise that all things will work together for good for those of us who love God, and it is a spectacular promise. But the promise that all things will work together is not the promise that everything's gonna work out in a way you're gonna accept. That ain't the same thing. That is very much not the same thing. Are all things going to work together for good for those who love God? Tell you what, if you've got a calendar program that'll throw out that far in the future, why don't you make a note 10,000 years from today, fellow child of God, why don't you and I meet, and I am quite certain we'll have Coke Zero in heaven. You ask me the basis of that, I have no idea. <laughs> we'll put our feet up and drink a Coke Zero or whatever passes for that in heaven, and we'll ask ourselves, did it all work together for good, and we'll know it did because there we shall be in the presence of our eternally resurrected king who has paid the way for us to be there and who has seen to it that all things work together. But about this thing of all things working out, sometimes no. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed and it got worse. We trusted God for a miracle of healing in this life and a continuation of this life for someone we deeply cared about and what we got instead was a funeral service. We did everything right to commit ourselves to the relationship, but it just didn't. We ran our business according to God's eight key principles for financial success, or 12 principles or 34 principles, depending on what book you bought. And we ran our business straight into the ground. God, you, 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 you led me to believe that it was all gonna work out. No, he didn't. No, he did not. He has promised you that it will all work together. He has not promised you that this situation is gonna work out in a way you're going to like. Why does that matter to these two paragraphs? Because in these two paragraphs that deal with external affliction and internal despair, 
noticeably absent from these two paragraphs is any assertion that circumstances are going to resolve themselves to your liking. The solution to dealing with comfort and affliction is not hang in there, it's gonna work out in a way you're gonna be okay with. No. The solution to internal despair is not hang in there because it's going to resolve itself in a way you'll be, you'll be pleased by. No. No. He has not made that promise. And that which is causing you despair may continue from now till you meet Jesus face to face. That which is afflicting you may just be an afflicted and afflictional part of what's gonna be the story of your life. Please, please, please do not believe he has promised you otherwise or you will become embittered toward him because he has not kept a promise that he, in fact, has not made. And I want to spare you that bitterness. But he hasn't left us alone, and that is, in fact, the heart of the matter. Roman 2, comfort in external affliction. Comfort in external affliction. Letter A, the reality of comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. The reality of comfort. Now, before we go much further, we better, we better make sure we have a good definition of what, what is comfort. And what, is, what is comfort and what is it that he comforts us? I have a chair at the house. In fact, that really doesn't do it justice. I have the chair at the house. You can ask Gail, when I sat in this chair at the furniture store for the first time, I turned to my sweet wife and I said, I am home. <laughs> the geometry of this chair is perfect in every dimension. It's just wide enough. It's not so wide it gets mistaken for a love seat, but it's not one. Some of y'all like narrow chairs. I do not understand you. It's a wide chair. Further, the arms of the chair are not down low. Why have arms on a chair if they're down at your side anyway? I want the arms up high, you know, like Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> that is chair arm geometry right there. The ottoman, I'm not a huge fan of recliners, but my ottoman is the same width as my wide chair so I can position my legs and feet any way I want to. And off by my left arm, between my arm and the wall, there is a, there's a table exactly the same height as the chair arm. None of this awkward reaching over or awkward reaching up. Oh no, it's right on plane with the chair arm. And it is exactly large enough to accommodate my turvis tumbler of iced tea or my coffee mug with enough room left for the television remote. The chair is oriented in such a way that it squares up with my admittedly somewhat oversized television screen. And there, I am comfortable. In fact, odds are I'll be napping there not many hours hence. Well, that ain't this. That ain't this. If you're expecting your relationship with Jesus to make you big chair, sweet, unsweet, well, actually artificially sweetened tea, if you expect your relationship with Jesus to make you tea glass, remote, big chair, TV, comfortable, 
you are going to be disappointed in Jesus time and time again because we're following him on a way he has described as narrow and difficult. We're, we're in process of becoming like him. And there's a lot we bring to that process that's not like him. And he's grinding that out. And he's burning that out. And he's putting us through stuff so that at the end of it all, we'll resemble him more than we did when we started. And some of that, much of that, is not comfortable. The word comfort here is the same root word as the name that Jesus gave to God the Holy Spirit when he called him the comforter. The called alongside one. The word here for comfort is, I will come alongside you. I will go through it with you. The reality of comfort is you're not alone in it. You're not alone in it. Jesus is with you. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, says Psalm 23. This is that. The reality of comfort. The reason for comfort? Look at it. It's in the back part of verse four. We go through our affliction and comfort so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. The reason for your being comforted, ultimately for your being troubled, so that you are comforted, is so that you can be used of God in the lives of others who are going through difficulty. Remember this about the things that God is sending into your life. Remember this about the life story that he is writing for you. You are not a reservoir, you are a river. You are not a tank, you are a pipeline. You are not a cul-de-sac, you are an avenue. And the things that God is sending to you, he is sending through you to be used in the lives of others. Your story is not mostly about you. Your story is the story of what he's up to. And you're not the end. You're a part of a process. And when you have suffered and been comforted, it's so he has you equipped to be used as comfort in the life of someone else. Don't think that this is all about you. Don't, don't park in, oh, poor me, I'm the end game of my suffering. Park rather in, Lord, I thank you that you're moving in my life, though I confess to you, I don't like this part. But Lord, walk with me through it as you've promised that you would. And Lord, open my eyes to my usefulness in the life of others. Usefulness I am gaining the hard way because there's probably not an easy way to gain this sort of usefulness. You cannot mostly be used to comfort affliction if you yourself have never needed comfort. By the way, this is supposed to work really well in the body of Christ. I praise God that, that, that our church has got functional life groups where people are connecting and bearing one another's burdens. I praise God for our Stephen ministry 
that is on standby to be called alongside the lives of those that are hurting, hurting and the, all the various relationships that God is using in our body of Christ. And if you're going through a time of difficulty right now, do not go through it alone. The Lord himself will comfort you, but part of how he does that is sending into your life brothers and sisters who will love you and who will walk through it with you. The responsibilities with comfort are thus raised. First, to give generously. Verse five um, says, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, we share abundantly in comfort too. Giving generously is way bigger than money. Certainly your financial relationship with, with this church, with, with life, is an important character of, of, of giving generously. But give out of your suffering and comfort. Be open to God using it. Not only give generously, but think biblically. Verse six just restates what we've been saying that God's purpose in your suffering is to, is to have it be used of him in the lives of others. If we are afflicted, verse six, it is for your comfort. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Be prepared to think biblically about your distress. Not to be ground down into it as though it is of no purpose or of no consequence beyond yourself. Get up and out of that mindset. You don't have to love everything that comes into your life. You do have to be thankful and you do have to be open. Lord, how do you intend to use this? And third, love sacrificially. I've already told you, Paul's relationship to the church at Corinth was tumultuous. They caused him no end of grief, even as he loved them very much. But what he could not do and did not do is he didn't love this church at arm's length. He cared deeply about this church. In addition to his commitment to their well-being, he cared about them. Our hope for you is unshaken, verse 7. And as you share in our sufferings, you'll share in our comfort. His life was entangled with that church. It's not an accident that giving generously, thinking biblically, and loving sacrificially are three out of four of the measures in our church's purpose statement. The fourth, the one that's not in my list here, is live missionally. And certainly Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth wouldn't have been there had Paul's life not been about living missionally. So the bottom line takeaway in comfort, in external affliction, God plans to use it in the lives of people whom you will impact. Be open, be connected, be ready for God to use your pain and his comforting of your pain in the lives of others. Roman numeral three, deliverance from internal despair. Verses eight through 11. Letter A, Paul's situation. I don't want you to be unaware. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We felt we had received the sentence of death. I don't believe there's but, but, but one possible label for the condition Paul is describing here. I believe Paul is describing a season in his life through which he had come, during which he was suicidal, during which he was extraordinarily depressed. He despaired even of life. Now, some of you have 
have been drawn into the mythology that Christians don't deal with mental illness and depression and even suicidalism. The brain is a physical organ, dear, dear friend, like the colon or the spleen or the, I don't know, the left knee. In a fallen world, physical organs can become diseased. Can one's spiritual walk affect one's mental health? Absolutely. Are they one and the same? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I'm going to chase the rabbit another step. There are also those who might say to you that no Christian would ever commit suicide. That's not true. There are those who would say to you that if you commit suicide, it'll cost you your salvation. That also is not true. And that's a theology issue. When a person is born again, my friend, if you're born again, this is what happened to you. At the moment of your new birth, in terms of your standing before God, your declaration of righteousness, at the moment of your new birth, you were declared forgiven, fully, finally, and forever. Every sin in your past, every sin in your life, every sin in your future was stamped, it is forgiven, and it is taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, even that sin of suicide, should it come. As horrible a stewardship as that is, as great a waste as that is, as magnificent a tragedy as that is. Well, I just don't think any born-again person could ever become that despondent. May God deliver you from a future that looks like that. Because he doesn't deliver everyone that he loves. Again, the, you will call the Apostle Paul spiritually immature. I want to meet you and him in heaven when y'all discuss that. Because he just said he despaired even of life. He says he felt like he had the sentence of death. He never went under a death sentence during his time at Ephesus. He's not talking about a judicial proceeding. He's talking about internal despair. Now, while the issue of despair and suicidalism is not always purely a spiritual issue, there are some spiritual disciplines and remedies that should be applied. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you are despairing of life, don't go through that alone. I have had brothers and sisters in Christ whom I have loved who have ended their own lives. Please don't inflict that on someone who cares about you. I don't feel like anybody cares about me. Cry out. Cry out loud and long and let the people around you have the opportunity to circle around you. And friend, if somebody near you cries out that they are despairing of life, don't you brush them off. Don't you brush them off. The woulda, coulda, shouldas that follow in the wake of a suicide are always one of the toughest things. I'll, uh, I'll get back on track because I am aware of what time it is but I wanted to deal with that. Paul's situation, I believe he was suicidal. What was God's solution for him? 
And again, this is not an entire comprehensive clinical guide to dealing with suicidalism. These are the at least things. These are the part that is a spiritual solution to what can be a very profound problem. Number one, rely on God. This, this all was to make us, in the middle of verse nine, to rely not on ourselves, but on God. That internal despair when it just got to be too much. Part of what God was saying to me in that moment is I need to rely on him, not just me. Let me ask you something. Who are the control freaks in the room? My hand went up first. You know what's funny is your family is looking at you wondering why you haven't raised your hand. Those who have to live with your control freakness are calling you out right now. I wish you could see it from where I'm standing. Keep them up. Confession is good for your soul. Let me help you with something. Raising your right hand, you are not, nor have you ever been, in control. There, isn't that better? May as well just give up hope with that. Amen. You just aren't. And the problem with we controllers is our life verse is a verse that doesn't exist. Our life verse is, I got this. And that verse doesn't exist. A season of despair is a marvelous time to remember, I ain't got this. I've nowhere near got this. This has got me. Lord, I better rely on you because you're sovereign and I'm not. Reliance on God, second memory of his faithfulness. You know, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. If you've known the Lord for a while and many of you have, he has a track record in your life. And he hasn't always worked everything out. But surely by now you can see how he's working all things together for good. Surely by now his track record in your life has given you something you can look back at and go, oh, I see it. I don't see all of it. I may not even see what I would label enough of it, but I can see his hand. Good. I have the memory of his faithfulness because he has been so faithful. The things he's brought me through, the things he spared me from, <laughs> the times I prayed for a given outcome and he did not deliver it, and if he had delivered it, I'd have been in trouble. Lord, thank you from time to time that you've not given me my way in the near term because you were up to something better in the long term. Yeah, I hear some amens. Third, settled hope. Settled hope. Um, on him, we have set our hope, says verse 10. I got a lot of things I'm hopeful about. I, uh, I like to plan ahead and I, I plan things and I hope things are gonna work out the way that I plan them. I already confessed I'm a bit of a control freak and, and, and I, I have a lot of things I hope for. But I am learning not to set my hope on anything but Jesus Christ. Because here's what I've learned, and I bet you're learning it too. Everything except Jesus is subject to change without notice. And if you set your hope, what did we just sing? No hours should be wasted on seeking our joy or placing our hope in what will be destroyed. 
Set your hope on Jesus. You say, right now, right now, Brother Russell, I'm in so much pain. It's so bad. Don't ultimately look for the resolution of your pain anywhere but the ultimate reality of Jesus Christ and the ultimate future he has died to prepare for you. Settled hope. And then the prayers of others. We're back to this theme of the reality and the importance of connection. Look at what he says. It's a, it's a, it's a mind-blowing statement. You must also help us by prayer. Verse 11. We are actually invited to become involved in the pain of others when we bear the burden of that pain in prayer to our Father. The great heart of our sovereign God is touched by the prayers of his people. You must help us by praying which is another reason for you not to bear your pain in a solitary, I got this, mentality. Cry out to others. Others will cry out to God on your behalf. This thing of prayer requests that we do on our cards in here, in our life groups, and in other gatherings, the proposition that we will pray for each other is meant to have teeth. It's not supposed to be some shallow catching up process. Pray and be prayed for. The big, big takeaway this morning is this. Child of God, contextualize your external distresses and your internal pain. Put them in a context that looks forward to what Jesus has accomplished for you. Put them in a context of the reality of what it is to know God and be one of his children. Don't expect to be free of pain because that's true, but do know that it's on track and on purpose for the eternity he has created for you because of Christ's death on the cross. If you're outside of Christ this morning, I don't understand why you think you should have any hope because for you it's going to get bad, then it's going to get worse, then it's going to get worst. And I don't mean to be a negative Nelly about it, but it's just reality. The judgment of God is rushing at you and it is one heartbeat closer with every heartbeat and one of those heartbeats will be your last and you will face a future in which you have absolutely no justification to consider yourself hopeful. It's horrific. But the death of Jesus Christ on the cross has accomplished the payment for that sin that will land you in the judgment of God otherwise. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross has accomplished the payment for that sin for every single person that will ever believe. We, uh, we sang, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. You let the theology of that verse camp in your heart child of God, and you long for that forgiveness if you're outside of Christ, cry out to him in repentance and faith and know eternal life. Your sufferings in this life are meant to be used of God to refine you 
and so that you can be a part of refining others. May we be useful to God even when we're hurting.